may be seated. Just keep your eyes closed. Father, never let those majestic words just be words. But let those truths be realities, God, that you are good to your children 24-7, God. We stand here in America. We are a blessed people, Father. We are truly blessed, Father God. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, we lack nothing. We're a people that lack nothing, Father. You are truly, truly good, God. And we can proclaim that goodness, Father God. We thank you that even the tough and challenging times of our life are designed by you to draw us closer to you and to rely on you and to see the real things that matter. And the only thing that matter are relationships, Father God, with you vertical and with each other horizontally, God. I pray for every man and woman and child in this church today that we grasp the magnificence, the value, the treasure, and the richness of interpersonal relationship one with another, with our wives and our children and our husbands and our friends, Father God. And we learn to cherish friendships, Father God, that we would be wealthy, inconceivable with the intangibles of the fruit of the Holy Ghost, God. Let us know genuine joy, not of this world, Father God, but a joy, an anticipatory joy of seeing you face to face, Father God. And as we enjoy each other in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, Father God, that we are actually worshiping you eternally, Father God, with the church triumphant that's there right now, Worshipping you, Father God. Let your children know just how overwhelmingly blessed we are. For it is truly your goodness and kindness and long-suffering and patience that has led us to repentance, Father God. And we are here today for one reason. You are a good, good God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Marty, Kim, thank you so much for leading us in worship. Like always, it's a blessing. An absolute blessing. I love worshiping the Lord, man. I love forgetting about all my big tribulations, which are really nothing at all. I got to be reminded every Sunday that what I think is important to me at the end of the day really isn't. Acts chapter 10, I'll be speaking about Peter's dilemma today. Though I'll be commenting on verses 9 to 23, I will read verses 1 to 23 again as last week. So if we can go to verse 1. Oh, here we are. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with his whole household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him and departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Our text for tonight. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while he was preparing, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheep descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And then there were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, 
as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry about Simon's house, stood at the gate. And they called out and asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said to him, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. We'll end there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. We recognize that there's a conflict taking place. We recognize there's a resolution taking place, that you're working on Peter's heart to show him how incredible you are. And that the promise to Abraham that the whole world would be blessed through him is coming to pass. But Peter had to grasp it. And you blessed him with a vision, Father God. Let us understand the depth of your love for other people, Father God. Never let us, never let us get caught up, Father God, in keeping the gospel to ourselves. Help us, Father God, overcome every spiritual perplexity we might have. Bring greater clarity to us, God, of just how patient you are with this world, Father God. Help us to understand the text and apply it to our life. Let us see it in its historical context. Make it come alive today, Father God. Put skin and bones on this text. Let us see it, God, clearly. The truth you want us to see in Jesus' precious name. Peter's dilemma, as I titled this message, we'll get into what the dilemma was. But as we saw last week when we spoke about Cornelius, we have a very lengthy section of Acts. We didn't read it all. We're going to finish it in 11, chapter 11, verse 18. But there are 66 verses that really make up one story. It's a big storyline in the book of Acts. Acts has a lot of storylines going on through it, a lot of stories. But this is the longest. And it's a very important time in the Christian mission uh, 2,000 years ago that the, the gospel has to go to the Gentiles and we always know that Paul is the what? The apostle to the Gentiles and he was the one who was mightily used by God to almost single-handedly bring the gospel to the whole Mediterranean world. But before Paul's uh, missionary journeys, Peter was there. It's actually Peter who brought the gospel to the Gentiles first and we're going to see that in our story. <coughs> But these 66 verses really read like five acts in a play. We spoke about Act 1 last week, a man named Cornelius. But each act is opening up a different plot. The plot is thickening. And like any good play, there's different plays being introduced, and we see that tonight. And each one is building on the act before, and we're going to build on Cornelius, the man from last week. And like all good plays or all good stories, there's a plot, there's a conflict, there's resolution, it's all taking place, and usually this grand finish, this grand finale, which we're going to find in chapter 11. Happy ending, there is a happy ending taking place here. But before we can really understand as we move forward, we have to realize that Peter is in a great dilemma. There's a great conflict of heart and conscience taking place in the apostle's heart that we would miss. So we would just read it and not take time to ponder what God wants you and I to know, what he wants the Christian church to know. Peter is in a town called Joppa. It's by the Mediterranean Sea. It's a border town with neighboring Gentiles. It's uh, it's truly a Gentile town. He's moving further and further away from Jerusalem, then Samaria, and now with the gospel's going to the outer reaches of the world, starting in Joppa. The Samaritans, the Jews, have believed the gospel, and God accepts them as his own. That's the message. You would think, well, we know that, Brian. But the truth of the matter is, that's a lesson we're always learning. I'll give an example of that of uh, my own life. Just recently, you know, last week as I'm going through this text, I'll, I came to a fresh understanding of a prejudice in my heart 
or maybe a lack of faith in my heart. It's probably more of a lack of faith. But now, Peter's only 30 miles away from the whole Gentile world. Peter and his Jewish, Jewish companions are not thinking about evangelizing these people. There's no thought of going to Joppa. It was a metropolis. It was a big urban city. It had multiculture going on over there. The big seaport. It's, it's spoken about all the way into... Uh, I think Jonah went to Joppa to get away from God when he was called to go to Tarshish. It was a big city. It was a well-known city. But Peter, it wasn't on his radar to go tell them about Jesus. But guess whose radar it was on? It was on God's radar. And that's more important than anything. Because what's on God's radar, if we listen to the word of God, will eventually be on our radar. There are certain core beliefs that Peter and any true Jew of his day and even today has. And one of those is that you do not eat what is restricted by the Mosaic law. You just don't do it. It was part of what made you Jewish. It was part of the culture. That's all you knew. Was you don't eat anything forbidden or common, as Peter said. And this is the conflict. You just don't eat what's forbidden. You don't eat with those who eat what's forbidden. That's the problem. As we're going to find out later, Peter doesn't have any fellowship. Think about this. Here's a man, he's probably in his later 20s by now, this is probably seven or eight years after uh, Christ ascended, the Holy Spirit came down on Jerusalem. He's eight years into his apostolic mission, and he's never sitting down with a Gentile. Now fellowship, you know, we, we eat all the time, but for a Jew to sit down and eat was to say, I accept you. And the God I serve accepts you. We accept you. This is, this is outside of the norm. This is the conflict. How am I a Jew who's forbidden to eat what's common? How am I a Jew to fellowship with anyone who eats what is common? How am I to go and eat and fellowship with them? It's a real dilemma. And before we get into our text, I will use a little application now and as I go through the story and, and later on, but God's plans are usually much bigger than our own. God's understanding of the gospel and his son and his mercy far exceeds our grasp of his mercy. Everyone who's saved by grace knows you're saved by grace. Everyone who knows that God has extended mercy knows you've been extended mercy, but we still don't grasp just how graceful and merciful God really is. We don't. Peter did it. And that's the dilemma. And though God's plans are usually much bigger and much grander than us. He needs to do a greater work in us and in Peter to catch up with what he's doing. Peter had to catch up. Peter had to get caught up to speed. God's going to joke whether Peter wants it or not. But he's called Peter to do it. The patience of God with Peter. The patience of God with Paul, the patience of God with me and you is a price that should overwhelm us. There are times in worship and private prayer and private devotion in my own life where the patience of God brings me to my knees in tears. Part of my prayer is, God, I deserve to be crushed like the bug I am. That's my prayer. And all I get is love. Because you see, at that moment, when you know that I deserve to be crushed, the law won't change you. Love will. Amen. And at the lowest point in a man's life, you would say, in the lowest part of a man's moral life, if you said, here's the Ten Commandments, well, you might as well give someone a hundred pound weight when he's in the middle of the ocean, drowning as it is. That's what the law would do. At the lowest point of life, you need grace and mercy. And that's what we have in our story tonight. 
God painstakingly went out of his way to put Peter in a trance to receive a vision. It's parabolic, and I'll get into it. It's not about food. It's about souls. I spoke about that over the last couple of weeks. This is about souls. Peter had to catch up with what God was doing. Peter had to catch up with the promise to Abraham. He should have known his scriptures. He knew his scriptures, but he had this dilemma going on. I know it, but I can't do it because it's forbidden. But I know God wants to bless the whole world. Let's go to our text. Verse 10. 9. The next day, as it were, as the... The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the house stop about the sixth hour to pray. Listen, when it comes to dilemmas, when it comes to conflict, God does his best work when we're praying. Understand something about this act. Chapter 10 to chapter 11. It begins with Cornelius. He had a vision from God, right? Guess what Cornelius was doing when he had the vision? He was praying. Act one is over. Act two. Peter gets a vision. Guess what Peter's doing? He's praying. Good place to start. Prayer is always a good place to start. It's always a good place for God to start in our heart. Prayer really sets the stage of change. And I've been adamant about this over the last several weeks. That prayer determines what we're going to be in our Christian life. Of course, good truth articulated well so you can see and and taste how sweet the gospel is and and understand the will of God but prayer is the catalyst that takes truth and we're going to get into this watch that changes everything Peter's in prayer sets the whole stage he's in prayer his heart is seeking after God Peter is not praying our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name he's not praying a ritualistic prayer here. He's he's seeking God. He's open to the will of God. True prayer, when you're in an attitude of genuine prayer, your heart and my heart as Peter's heart is wide open to whatever God wants to say. Because if it's not, guess what? It's not prayer. It's a monologue. Of what we're telling God. But his heart is wide open. Little does he know that worlds are going to collide. There's a man, Cornelius, coming to him. Remember, we know the story. We know there's three men coming from 30 miles away. They traveled throughout yesterday and the night before. They're finally going to arrive. They're at the doorstep, just about to knock on the door. Peter doesn't notice. He's up on the roof. He's praying. He's going to have, his world's going to collide with God's will. His world's going to collide with the Gentile world. He has no idea of what's going to transpire within the next couple of hours. Do you not know and I don't know that we don't know what can transpire when it comes to the will of God in the next two or three hours? Worlds are going to collide. The Jewish world is going to collide with the Gentile world. And Peter, who does not eat anything uncommon, does not fellowship with the Gentile is going to be the catalyst of God's will. The timing mechanism here is nothing less than divine. It is precision at its best. Two hearts are being prepared simultaneously. Cornelius knew the scriptures. Cornelius was a God-fearer. When Cornelius went to synagogue, guess where Cornelius had to sit? He was in the back with all the other God-fearers, uncircumcised. There would be a veil in the temple they could not see. Separated, quarantined, but yet they knew the real Jehovah was there. Cornelius' heart had to be prepared to send men to a certain Peter, a certain Simon who was called Peter. God is preparing hearts. I don't want you to miss it. Luke, the writer, does not want us to miss it. Only God can do this. This is a Jesus encounter that only God can do. We know we don't believe in coincidence. But this is majestic. Simultaneously, two men going up to pray. 
And God is speaking to the heart. That's all that counts, the heart. Neither one really knows what's taking place. They just have their vision, they have their trance. One has an angelic visitation. Verse 10 and 11 says this. And as Peter became hungry, he wanted something to eat. That, that, that's the part I like. I, I, that sounds like someone I know. And if he's anything, he'd be like the rest of us cranky Christians when we're not hungry. When we're hungry, you know? But while they were preparing for it, I guess he couldn't wait. He fell into a trance. I love that. Yeah, I love the word picture, you know? And in this trance, he sees the heavens open and something like a great chief ascending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. First thing we need to know, this trance is God-given. We have to know what it's not. This is not some self-inflicted spiritual state brought upon by someone's severe fastings. You know why I say that? Do you know that's taught everywhere? Do you know there are portions of Christianity that teach to enter in. You ever hear that one? Yes. You gotta enter in. I gotta be like, yeah, I want to enter. Who doesn't want to enter in? I want to enter in. I want whatever God has for me. I want to get in there. Give me the goodies. I want to enter in. Fast. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with fasting if your attitude is right. But if you're fasting for a trance, you're just gonna be hungry and miserable. I'm gonna tell you that right now. <laughs> if you're fasting for a vision, let me tell you something. There's a devil who will give you one. If you're fasting to get anything, true fasting is nothing more than a love for God. If God wants to do anything with it, praise God. But understand something. I say that because this is a God-given trance. It's not some self-inflicted spiritual state brought upon a person by his own personal fastings. We've heard way too much of that. It's uh, about a way of entering into God's uh, presence. And while you're there, you're going to receive these special instructions. I have examples I don't want to get into. There's just too many. But the bookshelves, the one that's selling now is Jesus Calling. There's a young woman under her own confession. She wanted to know more. She believed in the word, but the word wasn't sufficient enough. She needed more. So through these fastings and other things, she, she entered in where God spoke to her. Now you take that and you take a Christian publishing house that knows fads and trends and knows that it had what people want to hear. People want to hear man-centered theology. And it's selling like it might as well be the Bible. It's self-inflicted. Not a trance or a vision brought apart by God. Never mind over a prolonged period of months. This is bad stuff. Bad stuff. And Christians are buying it. You know? You don't get God's you don't get God's best at Barnes and Nobles. Listen, you don't go to Times Bestseller to find out what God wants to say to you. You go strictly to the Word of God and you find out with careful inquiry what the interpretation of truth is and let it apply to your life. If you do that, you'll know the presence of the true God. This is a trance given by God for the sole purpose of teaching the Peter of truth that he has not seen clearly. He knows it. He's wrestling with it. As I get into the rest of the story, you'll understand. But God had to give him a trance that he is now opening himself up to the whole Gentile world. The sheep comes down on all four corners of the world. Every unclean animal that could be there is there. Peter knows the implication. I cannot eat what is called common. I have never done it. It's about people, Peter. It's not about animals. The kingdom of God is about peace, righteousness, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not about food or drink. Peter had to learn. It's not about food anymore. The dietary mosaic law is over. God's not concerned about what you eat and what you don't eat. If you eat or drink, Peter, Paul says, do it to the glory of God. Verse 12, 13, 14. 
you know, all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to Peter, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And a voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happens three times, and the thing was taken up into heaven at once. Like I said, it's a parabolic vision. It's not about food. It's, it's about people. Peter is commanded to kill and eat what is clearly not Jewish. He's called to eat and kill, which is clearly forbidden. It flies in the face of Peter's life. It flies in the face of who Peter is. You know, God will challenge who you think you are down to your core being. I had someone told me, and I was speaking to him about the love of he go, they, you know what they told me? It's not who I am. And I said, praise God, but if you're a Christian, it's who you are now. God doesn't want who you are. God doesn't want any of us who we were. He's doing a fresh new thing in us. It flies in the face of Peter's mosaic dietary purity. No way, it's inconceivable. He's hearing something that's inconceivable. It's outside the realm of even considering it. That's why he says, no. He's arguing with God. I don't know if he picked up on that. By no means. He's putting his foot down. I can never do such a thing. I can't even consider it. It's, It's taboo. Understand something. That could be the presumption of Peter. We know that about him. But that's not what it was. He's being true to his convictions. It's a good thing. But there's no way he can do it. Peter's whole life, his whole Jewishness is being challenged. It's at stake, his identity. Do you know how many of us don't talk about Jesus more openly because it challenges our identity? Yeah. You know, we got a reputation to maintain. I'm somebody in the community. You know, people know who I used to be. I'm, you know, I, I, I can't get two Jesus on them. It, it's a challenge. What will people think about the fear of man is a trap. Peter's identity is at stake. You know what happened when Paul's identity was at stake? I counted all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus, my Lord. A religious superstar like Paul who had all the credentials, more credentials than Peter ever had. He counted it all as rubbish. All he could say is, I just want to be identified with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. I count all my past as rubbish. Peter's having a hard time. His whole life, his whole Jewishness, his whole identity is being challenged. So much so that God has to tell him three times. And we can't miss this threefold correction by God. There's a twofold answer. God really means it. Change has to take place. God is serious. Three times, Peter has to lose his identity as a Jew who's so committed to the law that he can't fellowship with a soul that needs to be saved. God really needs it. But Peter in his heart, in his Jewish heart, fought God tooth and nail. This is an unseen dilemma. We are reading something that's transpiring in maybe five minutes, maybe half an hour. We don't know exactly the time. It wasn't that long. But he's fighting it. And often in our life, we'll fight something we know God wants to do. There's something in us that God wants to, wants to die. There's some kind of identity marker of who I think I am or who you think you are or what people might think about us. If I wear that Jesus t-shirt or they see me with a Bible or I tell them about Christ or I want to share my faith, something's going to die. Some kind of identity marker of who I am is going to die. And, and we don't do it. Does that sound familiar at all? It sounds familiar to me. I know what i got to die to. I know what I wrestle with. On a golf course one day, swing golf club, playing with three guys, all high-powered people. And uh, I'm a young believer. I love the Lord. 
and I got caught off guard. They, they, they were saying this joke, and before I knew it, it was real quick. And, and they were saying, yeah, when you golf, you got to be like Christ when they nailed him to the cross. And they all giggled, because when you play golf, you got to have good food. And I remember, I, I, I was dry-mouthed. I couldn't say a word. I remember praying and saying, God, please forgive me. That I didn't stand up for my faith. A couple of years later, I walked in the gym. There's a guy on the floor. The crowd around him, they're all laughing. He's telling them the same joke. And when he got to the point that they crucified him, I moved out of, everybody out of the way. I got on my knee, right into his ear, and I said, Jesus died for your sins. Just enough for him to hear it and everybody around him. And like Jesus, when he, when, he, when, he, when he wrote on the ground about the woman caught in adultery and they all walked away, one by one they just walked away. And the only people there left was me and that guy. I said, Jesus died for you. He goes, I know I'm a Christian. Like my mother told me about Jesus. For six months I ministered to him. I never know what happened to him. But you see, the first time it was, this is not about me. I hope you understand that. Not about how great I am. Nothing to do with it. The point is, is how human we are. It's how human we are. And how awesome God is. Stand up for your faith. Die to whatever God wants us to die. Die to your reputation. Die to what people think about you. Who cares what people think about us? Get out there and share your faith in a loving way. I'm only using that some application. I don't want to get away from the thought flow over here. There's an unseen dilemma. Peter is called to do something that he just cannot see himself doing. He's so caught up in his Jewishness. It's not bad. It's not that it's good. It's that he can't escape his identity as a Jew. Often in our lives, we have these dilemmas that we just can't break. And let me just share this with you. I've witnessed the gospel since day one. There's a group of people I have a hard time with. I'm going to be honest with you. New ages. Not because I judge them. I got, I, I got no fruit with them. You know, they believe in Jesus. They believe in a Buddha. They believe in reincarnation. They got stones. They got this. And I'm, I'm trying to. But anyway, over the years, it's just like, you know, it's just It's hard. And I went up to uh, the hospital to meet Lucille, and I shared this a couple weeks ago, and there's a woman lying in the bed, and she shares with me, and uh, one day, one day I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to Lucille, we're praying, we're um, reading the scriptures, and she, her heart warmed up to it. The next couple days later, I came back, and she told me, you know, she was born on Long Island, she was a Jewish girl, she followed Buddha, she followed this one, she was following that one, and, you know, Jesus is everywhere, and Jesus is always coming around, and, and you know what I wanted to do? This is where I was like... I, you know, turn that off. I've heard that story. Let me just go to Lucille. And I'm telling you, God said, no, you need faith to believe that I'll save her. And I thought of Acts 19. And what God did there. And I lovingly spoke to her about all the other Jesus that leave us empty. And she said, yeah. And a couple other words. And I said, there's only one true Jesus and he died for your sins. The point being is that my first thought was not even to tell her. I've been down this road. It doesn't go nowhere. You know, and, and God had to remind me that I love that woman. And I saw it just like this. She was laying there, wounded, bandaged all over, big bandages. And, and I had to tell her. You know, so the point is that we have these dilemmas. We have these things. We have these sort of stereotypes that we don't even go out of our way anymore because we've been so hurt and so rejected and we, we don't want to waste our time anymore. And we don't realize that we've got to be careful of that. Amen? I mean, I have to be careful of that. You know, God lovingly rebuked me like he's doing that to Peter. Three times he had to tell Peter. You know, we go over and God will never stop telling us the right thing he wants us to do. And he'll do it in a loving way. God is fighting for a change in Peter's heart. God is fighting for a change in your heart and my heart. Listen to verse 17. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision had that he had seen might mean, he still doesn't grasp it. 
thinking about it. He's spending good quality time theologizing, philosophizing. What does this mean? Probably going through the scriptures in his head. Probably trying to figure it out. At this time, in the middle of this, right there, behold, men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry of Sinus house, stood at the gate. Coincidence? Remember, God is preparing two hearts, two worlds in the heart. And called out next, where the Simon who was called Peter was lodging there. Because you and I know the whole story already, we take we can easily pass over the word perplexed, and it loses its power. We can't do that. But Peter, at this time in his life, at this moment, could not come to grips with what he heard or saw from God. He was fighting God. No, my Lord, I, I can never eat that which is common. He's, he's going through this in philosophy, in, in, in school, they call it cognitive dissonance. His mind is thinking about something that's making him very uncomfortable. He's thinking about something that's new to him, and he's uncomfortable about it. It's strange. It's, he's perplexed. How could this be? Type of things, you know, God's telling me, but I know the word of God says no. And he's perplexed about it. It's, it he, he's going through this. He could not come to grips with what he heard and saw. It was God, just like me and you see things in God's word, and we can't come to grip with it. I remember, like, homosexuality is wrong. I was like, me and my wife be like, so what? Well, young believers, for years, it took me a while to realize that abortion is wrong. And no one ever rammed it down my throat or my wife's throat. It's after I come to know how awesome God is in the sanctity of life, I was like, how in the world could I have ever hold on to that? How in the world could I have not stood up against that? We go through things. God's word made no sense to Peter. He knew it was from God. But he was perplexed because it still made no sense to him. And this is what happened. While he was perplexed. It's only used four times in the whole New Testament. And Luke uses it all three, four times. Once in Luke, three times in Acts. It means an obvious fact that cannot be explained. And it puts you in this cognitive dissonance. It puts you in this perplexity. I know God just told me that. Face to face, he gave me a vision. I know it was from God, but I can't understand that. I, I can't be explained. God's word made no sense to him. He knew it was from God, but could not make the transition from hearing it to believing it for himself. That's why we've got to be patient with young believers. You can't ram truth down a young believers. You teach them, you, you feed them truth. And you lovely feed them truth. You know, you, you can't force them. You, you allow them to go through the awkwardness of learning the Christian faith. You allow them to see the reality of it. Just like when it came to abortion, if someone would have told me in my first six months, you have to believe this, I'd be like, I can't believe that. But after a couple of years, I realized it's the truth. I'm only using that as one example, amen? That's all, I just use that as an example. That's something me and my wife went through. Homosexuality, fornication, I said, so what? They love each other. They're having sex. I thought that was okay. I didn't realize that's a low view of sexual intercourse. It's not about personal entertainment. It's about to the glory of God. It's about the fidelity and the health of a marriage. <coughs> if the men from Cornelius, listen to me, this is how you know it's perplexing. If these men from Cornelius' house never showed up, Peter would have never grasped it is at the moment of perplexity. He hears a truth. He sees a truth. It makes no sense. He can't explain it. Knock comes out the door, and there's Cornelius' men. And now he has skin and bones on the teaching. Now he gets it. Now it's practical. Now I see it face to face. I can see it. Peter needed hard evidence. Sometimes as we're learning biblical truth, you know, it's just like, oh, the pastor's lecturing, pontificating about something. But when you take truth, and this is what I teach many times on Monday night, 
Take this lesson and see how many times you use it by the end of the week. Take the lesson you're hearing tonight, how God is applying it. And by the end of the week, see how much you use it. Right in the middle of his thoughts, these men show up. See, Peter needed a tutorial from God. Needed a tutorial. He's given him, right in front of him, a living example of everything you call to kill and eat is not uncommon anymore. Three Gentiles come knocking on the door. Starting in verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, see, he was pondering it, he was perplexed, he didn't get a vision, he didn't hear a sermon and forgot by the time he got to the corner what the sermon was about. He was listening. He was perplexed about the truth he heard. He was pondering it. He was giving consideration to it. Though it makes no sense, I don't understand, but I know it's divine truth. I, I got to grapple with the word of God. Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, the Spirit says. For the Spirit says, I have sent them. God says, I sent them. Not Cornelius. God has. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said to him, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by the holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guest. Don't miss verse 23. He invited them in. He's grappling with the truth. He's pondering. He's perplexed about what he heard and what he saw with the truth God was trying to tell him. He was perplexed and he was pondering. But he knew enough to what? Invite them. And don't miss that. This is not a a gesture. It wasn't, Jews weren't into gestures. They were like, oh, you're hungry, you can't come. You might as well come in. No, no, no. He's starting to get it. He's starting to learn something. As the vision was fresh on Peter's mind, the Holy Spirit says to him, and and this is important, because this is a little theology, Luke, in both Luke and Acts, talks much about the Holy Spirit as the role of God. Understand something. God is the one who initiates everything, but the Holy Spirit is the one who's applying it. What Luke is saying anyway is that the Holy Spirit is God. Don't miss the text. The Holy Spirit is God. It is God the Spirit who is personally, as the Son of God stepped out of heaven personally, as the Son of God was birthed personally, as the Son of God personally took on the cross, the Spirit of God personally drew you and I in personally went to Cornelius, personally went to Peter. The Holy Spirit, when you were born again, personally came to your heart and knocked on your door and said, come now, child. When the Holy Spirit, when God's word speaks to you about an inner change, it's God knocking on your heart, personally saying, let this change. This point, this points to the fact that the Holy Spirit is God and is directing the hearts of people in the mission of Jesus' redemption. You think that God would leave the mission and work of redemption to mere human beings? You know what happens when he does? It's called religion. You go and you leave the same. Nothing changes. The mission of Jesus Christ's redemption his work on the cross is given to the only vicar of the church the Holy Spirit and we say that often I want you to know that we don't have to juggle go to that church they juggle great while he's preaching some kind of novelty how we go over there they're doing this great over there you know they tap dance you know what I mean there's a keg party after that would be great we got a lot of people we have a keg party for Memorial Day come to church you know no gimmicks. Just the truth spoken in love. That's it. The truth spoken in love. 
the Holy Spirit will take care of it. And as I said, Peter could have pondered this forever if he wanted. But what he needed was the hard evidence, and God gave it to him. For the next 24 hours, Peter will continue to ponder. He invited the men into the house. He's thinking about his own vision. He's thinking about Cornelius' word. He's taking it all in. Probably went back to the roof again. Probably trying to take it all in. You know, we only got this one little story that Cornelius' servants told him what everything killed. But they must have had dialogue throughout the night. Peter must have been overwhelmed by what was transpiring. Peter must have been overwhelmed on just how incredible God is, how patient God is, how loving God is. When Jesus says, I came to seek and to save those who are lost, this is what he means. He keeps on seeking and he keeps on saving. Even when we can't see it, nothing's going to stop the mission of Jesus. He invites him in. This is the first step towards understanding. You want to understand God's heart? Get as close to other people as you can. That's how you know God's heart. You don't know God's heart by reading a book. You don't know God's heart by going to lecture after lecture or sermon after sermon. Talk to people about God. Share your testimony of what Jesus has done for you. Listen to people. God's out there. He's working on people's heart. He didn't have to, he didn't have to go to Cornelius and say, Cornelius... I'm Peter the Apostle, and I'm here with a mission from God, and you're going to listen to me. You see, God already spoke to Cornelius through the law of Moses. And later on, we're going to find out that Peter didn't have to rip apart Moses. He just elevated Christ. See, what we want to do is go to Roman Catholics, and we want to go to everybody else and, and, and rip apart their theology. We want to deconstruct so that we can resurrect something new. You don't do that. Just go talk to him about the real Jesus and the real salvation. The Holy Spirit will take care of it. He'll work out the incidentals later. Don't go with the negative, go with the positive. He's starting to get it. He's opened up his heart. Grace has started a fresh new work in Peter. Don't miss it. You know, we just want to close the book and go home. This is a paradigm shift in Peter's life. This is, this is an aha moment for Peter. We all need that. Please understand something. We all need that. In the hospital the other day, I got one. I was like, who am I to ever think that anybody's beyond God's grace? Me, I preach it. I know it. But I struggle with the dilemma. As we go on, the next act reveals so much more of what actually Peter was entertaining when he was perplexed and pondering. Let me just go to some applications of those. Perplexities. The Christian faith brings us into many perplexities. I shared a couple moral perplexities before. We all need a new work in our hearts over different matters in our life. Some of us have personal prejudices that we just have a hard time getting over family things. Resentments, some are theological, some are doctrines we just find too hard to understand. When you're trying to explain the sovereignty of God and salvation, when you're trying to explain God's providence in a world gone mad, how could God allow these things if God is so good and so loving and so kind? How could children die and beheaded and all this kind of stuff? And, you know, and you're wrestling with these dilemmas, and, but they're there. You know, we, we bring it out of Catholicism. I just could not grasp that Mary wasn't something special. It was very hard for me. Praying to the saints. Coming out of Pentecostalism, I just couldn't believe that prophecies and miracles just, you know, it's, they're, 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 not, they're not for today like that. Of course, we pray for miracles and God's grace and God's healing. We always do that. But I told you this, I'm not going to go to the hospice and raise up the hospice out of their sickness. But I got something better. I'll go to the hospice and tell them about a Savior. See, the world has nothing to offer people in their last days of life. Nothing. Nothing at all. After 9-11, I was down there and we were witnessing. I was with a group of people. And this was the order by the Red Cross. Don't evangelize. That's what the Red Cross said. They were the over-garden 
sort of like a little hierarchy. They'll run the whole thing. They got, you know, they got a lot of uh, administration. They were, they were good on the ground. But this is what they were saying. Don't evangelize. Now, Red Cross at one time was it's a Christian organization. You don't want to hurt people who are already hurt. The truth is, don't give hope to people who are hopeless. That's what they were saying. You see, please, wherever you go, you carry the word of life. Wherever you go, wherever I go, nothing conquers Christ's salvation. No matter what someone's going through, Jesus Christ is the answer. But here's where we've got to start with these perplexities. I'll ask you this. Would you like an angelic visitation? I'm glad no one raised their hand. <laughs> and I'm not going to ask you if you had one. Would you like a vision? You'd think you would, right? Please understand me. I don't got my Bible. The Bible gives us the exact cos- uh, 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 how can I say, composite sketch of the vision of God himself that he wants us to know. Everything that God wants me to know about him, it's in the word of God. And prayerful study, consideration, and faithful interpretation will bring me into the grand understanding. Peter's getting a vision of what Jesus already told him to go to the sheep. I have other sheep not of this fold. Peter already heard it. Peter was there on the ascension when when Jesus was ascending in Luke 24 and he said, Lo and behold, all authority has been given unto me. Go into all the world making disciples. He had to learn it and learn it and learn it again. Do you know 20 years later, Paul had to rebuke him for falling back into the same old trap? Galatians chapter 2, 20 years later. The fear of man was always a crux in Peter's ministry in his life. Let me just close with this. I got a couple, but I'll close. I went a little long. God's patience with Peter, God's patience with his church, God's patience with us is just absolutely overwhelming. If we were to ponder the perplexity of God's patience with our life, it would bring us to tears. And it has many times in my life. I ask you this question. How can we not be patient with other people? How can we not? How can we just be impatient with anybody created in God's image? Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you for your clarity. We thank you that you work patiently with our perplexities. You work patiently with the change of heart we need in all our interpersonal relationships. Father, we love you. We thank you for this word, Father God. We thank you for Peter's vision. Because Peter's vision might have been his at first. But since you put it in the scriptures, it's all our vision. And you're calling all of us to kill and eat for what God calls holy is holy. Help us in this endeavor in Jesus' name.